0: Okay, good morning. I want to thank our sponsors this morning. Irving and Bunny Cherson in commemoration of the yurt of her beloved brother Yitzchak Ben-Pinchas and Maurice and Eva Kaufman in commemoration of the yurt sites of their beloved mothers. Gittor Bas Chaim Eliezer and Hadassah Bas David. Meshama should all have an aliyah. I also want to take a moment. Uh, there are flyers around the room to uh, encourage you to sign up because we're at almost 300 signed up. We're going to run out of space for the incredible workshop with Dr. John Gottman. Dr. John Gottman is really considered a the world's expert on healthy marriages. His research, his best-selling books. I don't want to take time. Look him up and you'll see undeniably that he is an authority in this area. He is coming in the flesh. Um, and uh, that's at 7 to 9 p.m. Sunday night, January 28th. You don't want to miss this seminar, this workshop. As I said, space is filling up rapidly and it'll be hard to get in. So sign up uh, quickly before it's too late. Parshas Vayeshev. This week we have the privilege of studying together this phenomenal Parsha of Vayeshev. For the record, we're not going to get into it. No, we're going to get into the Parsha. We're not going to get into the series of questions. Parsha's Vayeshev on the surface is a Parsha. We're all familiar with... We know the Parsha. I was lying in my son's bed last night. We were doing the Parsha together. He has this great app, Shazak, that goes through the Parsha. And uh, actually I got a little bit nervous because... I was concerned he'd see himself in the Parsha as we were learning about this uh, youngest son born to an older father. The father <laughs> loved him because they studied Torah together. The siblings had a rivalry with him. So we, I tried to... Anyway, I got a little bit nervous. But the point is that we read this as a five-year-old and that's the image of the Parsha that sticks with us even into our adult years. And so it's a cute story and it has a nice ending because we know how it's going to conclude and we wrap it up with a neat bow, the reconciliation that takes place and they make their way to Egypt and, spoiler alert, but everybody talks to each other once again and Yosef survives and Yaakov is reunited. But if you stop and you look at this parsha, it's incredibly troubling. It's arguably the most difficult parsha in the entire Torah. I mean, how could it be that the sibling rivalry was so bad that they wanted to kill their brother. They tried to kill their brother. We know horrible, horrible, horrible people who are absolutely alienated and estranged from their siblings, but they don't try to murder them. And here you're talking about the Shiv Kah. These are the great fathers of the tribes of the Jewish people, raised in the home of Yaakov Avinu, raised in the lap of their grandfather Yitzchak exposed to the teachings of Rivka, to Rachel and Leah, and they reduced themselves to attempted murder? And even though they held back from murder, but to sell their brother into slavery? And true Chazal, look at our parsha. I'm not going in order in our overview here, but you all know this parsha. True Chazals look at the story of how Yaakov favors Yosef, and they're critical, and they remind us that we have to be so careful, so vigilant not to favor any child over another. But let me ask you, every parent knows that. Every child-rearing textbook doesn't even include that because it's so obvious, it doesn't even need to tell you. And yet, Yaakov didn't know that? Yaakov didn't know that it would result in enmity, it would result in, in rivalry to favor one child over another? Yaakov didn't realize that on his own? And Yosef, Yosef, who has the appellation, he's known to us as Yosef Hatzadik, didn't realize that not every thought and not every dream, do you have to share? How exactly did he think they'd react when he says, ha, listen to this interesting dream I had last night. I was in the middle and you were surrounding me, and you were all bowing down. What's the matter? You don't find that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? (laughs) He didn't realize? He's Hatzadik. Yosef the tzadik, so smart, so bright, so precocious. And he doesn't know and can't anticipate that you're already favored by dad. You got that colored coat. And you don't realize maybe you shouldn't share these dreams. And if you're sharing your dreams, you don't realize that maybe you shouldn't be running to fill your father in on everything your brothers do. That nobody likes a snitch. He doesn't realize that. So the Parsha is unbelievably challenging. We can stick with our five-year-old version of the Parsha. It's cute and we know and it's a ring and it's a great precedent and we know and teaches us a lesson don't favor a child. And a... Or you could ask these really difficult questions. Yaakov, Yosef, the Shvatim and we didn't even talk about Yehuda and Tamar. Right? Yehuda and Tamar. I mean, what in the world is going on there? That you don't carry the five-year-old memory because they don't teach it to you when you're five, when you're ten, when you're fifteen. Tamar was an innkeeper. I don't know how they translate. But... They don't even teach that to you as a kid. So you read it as an adult, and you go, oh yeah, interesting story. Yehuda, Yehuda, the the monarchy of Israel. Yehuda, one of the righteous fathers of the Jewish people. Yeah, it makes sense. He slept with a prostitute. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. He just thought it was a prostitute. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, it makes sense that Tamar herself, a mother of the Jewish people who wanted to continue the name, of course she dressed up like a harlot. She knew how to do that. She knew where to sit. She knew how to conduct herself. She knew how to seduce him. Uh, Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's not stop and ask any questions. So, I, the over, instead of an overview of the Parsha, I'm actually trying to complicate your life. <laughs> to realize that if you read the Parsha honestly and without any preconceived notions, all you're left with is utter confusion. Now, the Slanom Rebbe asks all these questions, and the Slanom Rebbe comes to a conclusion that I'm uncomfortable with, that I find challenging. Maybe you'll like it. He says these questions are, in fact, so compelling. So difficult that it's impossible to believe that any of these protagonists, any of these characters had free will. That clearly there was a divine master plan. The Ribbon HaShalom was trying to make good on the Brisbane Absarim. God was orchestrating and choreographing the Jewish history to bring us down to Egypt. And He suspended everyone's free will in order to choreograph a story that would result in that conclusion. That's the Salam Rebbe. That the shift they are beyond reproach that the Shvatim, Yaakov Avinu's behavior, Yosef, Yehuda, all of the other tribes, they're beyond reproach, beyond criticism, they're not mere mortals, we cannot compare their lives, their temptations, their desire, their struggle to ours. So unusual, so out of character, so impossible to believe that we have no choice but to accept that Hashem interfered with their free will and organized, choreographed these behaviors, these choices, as bizarre as they are, in order to arrive at the conclusion that they did. Okay, that's an approach. It's an approach. It's not the approach of our Rishonim, who left and right in our parsha have no qualms. Chazal themselves. Chazal are critical of Yaakov for favoring Yosef. Chazal are critical of Yosef for talking Lashonara on his brothers. Chazal are critical of Yosef for being a Naar, for being obsessed with his hair and looking in the mirror and how he appeared and his handsomeness. Chazal are critical for the brothers, for not showing the leadership to stop one another. When it... When it went all the way down to the point that it did. So Chazal weren't afraid to say that there were some human foibles and failures. and So it's a challenging, challenging, challenging parsha. We're not going to answer all of that. We may not answer any of that. But I want to encourage us to read the parsha as adults, not as five-year-olds, to ask the critical questions, to try to understand at a deeper level, maybe the Selenam Rebbe's approach does it for you, and maybe it doesn't, and that's okay. Shimon not LaTorah. We have many perspectives on the Torah, and that is is okay. Let's go back to the very beginning. The Parsha begins with Yaakov. What happened at the end of last week's Parsha was the reunion of Yaakov and Esav. They go their separate ways, which the Rav taught us meant that they can't walk together. We, the Jewish people, if the world continues to deny God's role in it, His dominion of it, if the world continues to manufacture its own Principles of morals and ethics, and not embrace God's design, then we can't walk together arm in arm. There are going to be times that we have to go separately in different directions. And Yaakov tells Esav, "We can only walk together when, when Mashiach will come. Only when Hashem's name will be made great, when you will accept Hashem that I have already accepted, then we can walk arm in arm. Until then, we walk in two different directions. We walk two different roads of life. A great instruction." to the Jew. And then we have the story of Reuven, and the Parsha ended, more or less. And now we have this week's Parsha. Has Yaakov been through a lot in his life? Would it make sense that Yaakov is looking to retire, some peace and quiet? Right? Yaakov had to deceive his own beloved father. And then he was on the run, 20 years in the home of on 22 years estranged from his father. Finally, he thinks he's marrying Rachel, he switched with Leah. He works very hard, he finally gets Rachel. He struggles with infertility, with his beloved, most beloved wife. He then escapes and the father-in-law chases him and challenges him and he has to maneuver his way out of that episode. And, you know, all he wants now, Rashi quotes, Vayeshev Yaakov, Bikesh Yaakov, Leshev Beshalva." All he wants is to move to Century Village, play shuffleboard, get the early bird special, learn the daf five times a day, maybe mix in a little majan or gaf and call it a day. Bikesh Yaakov Beshalva. He's just it's enough aggravation, consternation, enough anxiety. Just want some peace and quiet. And what happens? Rashi tells us, just as Yaakov wants bikesh Yaakov, Leshay Beshalva, Kafot Salov, Rogjos Yosef. I may be misquoting, I'm not finding it. But uh, Rashi quotes the chazal that just when he wanted to sit with tranquility and serenity, boom, Hashem throws at him this episode, maybe the worst of them all. His son, his youngest, his beloved, most beloved son, not youngest Binyamin, young, but youngest from, from, from Rachel, and he thinks he's dead. And he's missing for so many years. Why would Hashem... What's, what's wrong with retirement? What's wrong with sitting b'shalva? What's wrong with having some peace and tranquility and quiet and calm? Why must life have its challenges and vicissitudes? And why? Why can't we just have peace and quiet? So I'm not going to give you the answer to that, but I want you to think about that question. Because that is the precedent to the whole parsha. It's almost as if Yaakov's inappropriate wish to be able to live Bishalva was actually the catalyst that instigated the horrific episode he then had to face. Had Yaakov not asked the inappropriate request, all I want is shalva, then he wouldn't have had to experience this horrific episode. But Yaakov asking leshe Bishalva was so inappropriate So incorrect, Hashem had no choice but to respond in the way that He did. And I leave that for you as a question. But I want you to note the word Vayeshev. Vayeshev Yaakov. Unlike, we talked about last week, in the beginning of last week's parsha, when Yaakov sends emissaries to tell Esav, Im Lavan, Garti. Right? We focused on this last week. I don't need to rehash the whole thing. What's the root of the word Garti? Ger. And the Rav pointed out already last week that Yaakov did not tell Esav Im Lavan Yashavti. He specifically, by design, said Im Lavan Garti. What was he communicating? I may have been there for 20 20 years, but I never unpacked my suitcase. Right? At least emotionally, spiritually, I never unpacked. I never settled. I unpacked my suitcase. 20 years is a long time to live out of a suitcase. But I never viewed myself as a fully integrated citizen, resident, part of Lavan's home. I remain part of and apart from. Right? Last week we talked about Avram buys the field. From Ephron, he is ger imachem. A ger and a toshav, and in that way the Jew in diaspora is forever both part of and apart from at the very same time. Yaakov communicates that to Esav. And now we have in contrast, says Rabbi soloveitchik Last week was in Lavan Garti. This week begins with Vayeshev Yaakov Be'ert Megure Aviv Rabbi writes The earlier parashas From Nachlachot Through Vayishlach Centered around The relationship Of the Jew To the non-Jew Avram with Paro Avram with the kings of war Avram and Yitzchak With Avimelech Yaakov with Esav From Vayeshev Through the end of Brasius, The emphasis is now On the relationship Among Jews themselves The saga of Yosei Seu Represents the idea Of Chet and Tshuva Sin and repentance Only God is perfect The human is by nature A sinner not even the greatest of our forebears walked without falling. non our forefathers had the courage to repent and confess, to plead guilty and to regret what they had done. Very much the opposite of the slum rebbe. Says the Rav, let me get you ready. You're about to read a story that if I made it up, you wouldn't believe it. If I presented it to you as a movie or a book, you wouldn't believe it. It's in our humush, so we have to believe it. And says the Rav, why is it there it's so unbelievable? Because, specifically to communicate, that if our forefathers... If they could experience such civil rivalry, if they could have such failure and poor judgment as a parent, if they could have temptation and seduction, then so could we. But just as they repaired the damage, just as they did tshuva, so too must we. And that's the lesson of Vayeshev through the end of B'reishv, says thereof. But back to that word Vayeshev. He writes, The word Vayeshev is the connotation of settling permanently, this verse strongly emphasizes that it was Yaakov's intention at this point to attach himself to the land of Israel. In the words of Rashi, Bikesh Yaakov Yaakov sought to settle in peace. The words Migurei Aviv be'eretz Canaan connote not merely a geographical location, but a love for the land that was both his father's and grandfather's home. The stage was set for the covenantal promise of inheriting the land of Canaan to be realized immediately. Esav had left Canaan for Seir, clearing the way for Yaakov. Had the quarrel between Yosef and his brothers not taken place, the exile foretold in the Brisbane Absarim of oppression in a foreign land for 400 years would have been fulfilled through Yaakov's sojourn through Haran. God's arithmetic is different from man's. If the Egyptian servitude was in fact reduced from the promised 400 to 210, then God could have further reduced it to 20 years that Yaakov himself was in exile, thus obviating the Egyptian exile entirely. The discord among Yaakov's children thwarted his plan to inherit Eretz Megurei Aviv. Yaakov was done being a geir. He was sick and tired of being a stranger, of being a guest, of being the other, which all generates anti Semitism and persecution and bias. Yaakov wanted to be a Toshav. He wanted to be a full citizen. He wanted to live in his own country. Eretz Megure Aviv. He wanted to be in his homeland. That's what he wanted. Vayeshev Yaakov, Be Eretz Megure Aviv. And the use of the word Vayeshev with. Megure Aviv is telling us that that he wanted to be done with the gear. He was done traveling, journeying the exile experience. He wanted to come home. He wanted to be at home. He wanted to feel at home. And the passage continues by telling us: Ela told us Yosef. Ela told us Yaakov. Yosef ben Shvashre So you could read this in one of two ways. You could read this and ask the question: Ela told us Yaakov. These are the offspring, the progeny of Yaakov. What's the problem? Torah doesn't then continue to list. Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yudhi, It didn't list the progeny. What happened? Why don't we complete the sentence? The answer is, we did. Who is the ultimate tolda of Yaakov? Yosef. Ela told us Yaakov. Yosef. And Rashi explains that Yosef looked exactly like Yaakov. Not only the physical resemblance, but their mannerisms, and their posture, and their personality, and so much. Yaakov demonstrated that he could keep what he had learned from his father, even in a foreign land, namely among the home of Lavan. And Yosef was destined to demonstrate that as well, when he now would go to Egypt and have to live in exile in a foreign land. Right? The Torah tells us, Chazal interpret that, Nafshok, Shurab, and nafsho, Their two souls were intertwined. Yaakov and Yosef were two peas in a pod. We can understand why that would alienate the brothers. Yosef is 17 years old. He's a ben zikunim, to his father. And again, let's very quickly, because we all know the story. Yaakov makes Yosef the coat. Yosef has these dreams. It intensifies the hatred of his brothers. Yosef is sent to visit his brothers, right? What happens? Yaakov says to uh, Yosef, go, I need you to check on your brothers. He heads towards Shechem. And he sees a man. Rashi says, the Malach Gavriel, we talked about the Ibn Ezra, says, just an ordinary man acting as his angel, meaning doing something to help him. And uh, he says, oh, they're over there. So Yosef heads towards them. And when the brothers look up, what do they say? What do they say? First of all, who's he looking for? Vayomer. Who's he looking for? S. On page 202. about six, eight lines down. Vayomer. Yosef says, Es achai anochim mevakesh. I'm looking for my brothers. Esachai Anochi Mivakesh Rav Yaakov Weinberg has an essay called Esachai Anochi Avakesh He's talking about a relationship with Reform, Conservative with fellow fellow streams of Judaism and he names the essay Esachai Anochi Mivakesh I'm searching, I'm seeking, I'm looking Mivakesh Mivakesh is an interesting word It's more than just trying to find their geographic location but Mivakesh I'm yearning, I'm desirous of I seek to connect with, es achai. Ya- Yosef, like his father Yaakov, specializes in the attitude of achai. Yaakov called the guys at the be'er achai. My brothers. Yaakov calls his sons achai, brother. And Yosef says that, brother, achai. A brother is one has a connection with more than just a biological obligation towards. In in Hebrew, in the laws of availus, we talk about whether you can resew a shirt that you tore kriya. The Lashon, the language that Chazal, the Shulchan Aruch later uses is to be Mi'ache. When you restore, when you tie it, when you try to make it look like new, your Mi'ache, Achai, is a connection, is a bond, is to look like it's integrated together. So he's looking, what do the brothers say? They see him from a distance and what do they say? Ah, oh, he Look who's coming. The dreamer. They don't mean it as a compliment, Martin Luther King Jr., right? They mean it, look who's coming. That dreamer is heading the clouds, the foolish. Now, some of the commentators point out, you see how low they have sunk already, that they can't even use his name. Oh, here comes the dreamer. Here comes that idiot. Here comes that loser. Here comes that, they can't even call him a name. He's the dreamer. Look, here comes the dreamer. And again, we know they want to kill him. Yosef, Reuven intercedes in the plot. Yosef is then sold as a result. It's told to Yaakov. They dip the coat in blood and bring it to Yaakov. Yaakov refuses to be consoled. He's inconsolable. And then the story is interrupted. And we've talked about previously, you could listen online, why the story of Yehuda and Tamar comes in the middle of the story of the sale of Yosef. Chronologically, it likely didn't happen in this order. So why does the story of Yehuda and Tamar we interrupt the story of Yosef and his brothers to bring you the story of Yehuda and Tamar? What is it communicating that it's dafka here? And that story we're not going to talk about right now. Yehuda, Tamar which like all the stories of Moshiach's, Moshiach's Yichus. I gave a share in Shavuot several years ago. Moshiach's Yichus is absolutely the worst Yichus a human being could have. Yehuda and Tamar Rus and Boaz David and Batsheva, Lot and his daughter. I mean, the, every aspect of you If Mashiach had to prepare a resume, no one would let their daughter go out with him. <laughs> Period. Zichus is so horrific. And this is part of it. This is part of his story. Good. We then come back to the story. Yosef is brought down to Egypt. He works in the home of Potiphar. This is where we're going to study intensely. Potiphar's wife slanders Yosef. And uh, he's put in jail. In jail he meets the Sarah Ofim and Sarah Mashkim. Sarah Mashkim is released from prison and he forgets Yosef. That's Yosef's punishment. Okay, that's the overview of the Parsha. Let's get into Arab Sukim. We did that faster than usual so that we can actually see some of these pilgrim. Although that doesn't say much. Okay. So I want to start from Hamishi, which is Parak Lama Pasuk Aleph. Chapter 39, verse 1. You're in the Stone Chumash. It is on page 212, 213. Okay, everyone see it? Good. says the Torah of Yosef Hurad Where are we in the story? Yosef has been sold down to Egypt. He arrives in Egypt as a slave. He's auctioned in the marketplace. And who purchases him? Potifar. Yosef is brought down to Egypt. Potiphar, who works for Paro, the uh, Saratabachim, who was an Egyptian, buys Yosef from the hand of the Ishmaelim, who had brought him down to Egypt. Why do I need all that information? We're reading it in a vacuum. But if you're reading the text straight, you've just come off the interruption of Yehuda Tamar, So you need to be reminded of where the story last left off. That Yisshma Elam brought him down to Egypt, and we're selling him, and that's why it's included here, even though it seems to be redundant. What does it mean? Hurad says Rashi Rishon, the Torah is now going back to the story that it had left off. When Yehuda descends into this not flattering story, it describes Yehuda as going down. What's the language? Yehuda went down from his brothers. And here it says, And Rashi notes that the play on words, that both describing Yehuda and Yosef is hurad, is to descend, is to go down. And telling us that there is a parallel between the two. That for Yosef, Yehuda went down. Wow, you talk about putting a positive spin. Rashi says, just like the episode of Yehuda ve Tamar, you can't view that story simply as Tamar actually was, acting as a harlot. No, Tamar had noble intent. She wanted to continue her husband's name. She had no one else to marry. She understood that Mashiach was to descend from her. She needed the spark of Yehuda. However you want to Kabbalistically uh, reinterpret the story, we all know that Tamar had a noble intent. Says Rashi, the same was true with the wife of Potiphar. Why was she chasing Yosef so passionately? Not because she had some driver urge, but she knew... Based on her astrological sign, that her genealogy was meant was destined to be intertwined with that of Yosef. She just didn't know if it was through her or through her daughter. Now, as it turns out, we don't talk about this a lot. Who does Yosef end up marrying? Osnasbas Bas Potifar. Yosef ends up marrying his accuser's daughter. Right? I've referenced that in the past, and I always say we can imagine what that Thanksgiving dinner was like. <laughs> must have been a little uncomfortable Pesach in that home he ends up marrying the woman his mother-in-law tried to seduce him endlessly, relentlessly he escapes, she falsely accuses him she sends him to prison he ends up marrying her daughter how exactly that works out? not for now but Rashi points out that lest we ascribe some a noble intent to her, know that like Tamar, she had a noble intent. She knew their destiny was meant to intertwine. She didn't know if it was through her or through her daughter. And that's why she had such relentless pursuit of Yosef. Okay, that's Rashi's interpretation. It certainly is not the simple meaning of the text. It says this, For now, Yosef hurad, echad ba'atzmo, yarad Yehuda lamalo, azman ba'atzmo, Yosef hurad. The same language is used not to tell us about the intent of the protagonist in the story, but that it happened at the same time. While Yehuda was descending to his episode, Yosef was descending into his episode. Good. Let's keep going. Pussy Base. We're already now far surpassed last week. Vahi Hashem as Yosef, Vahi Ish Matzliach, Vahi Beves Adunav Hamitzri. And Yosef finds himself now in a strange land, in a foreign culture, with a strange family. He's put in charge of running that person's home. And is he successful? Absolutely, enormously so. Why? Because Vayi Hashem is Yosef. Hashem's with him. And he becomes an Ish Matzliach. Vayi Bebe's Adonav, Ha-Mitzri. He's in the house of the Egyptian, and whatever he does, Pasakim, Vayar Adonav, Ki Hashem ito. Now, it's not lost on Potiphar that since he put Yosef in charge, his revenue has doubled. His profit margin has doubled. His his portfolio has doubled. He can't help but notice what's going on. And everything Yosef touches turns to gold. Now, what's interesting? On the one hand, when the Torah told us, why was Yosef successful? Because God was with him. I understand how the narrator, otherwise known as God, would know that the reason that Yosef was successful is because of God. I understand that. But how did Potiphar know? Vayar Potiphar saw. Not just that, wow, what a business mind this guy has. It's like Warren Buffett, it's unbelievable. Everything he tells me to invest in, everything he touches turns to gold. This guy's unbelievable. He doesn't just say, wow. He's a warden graduate. Wow. He's a brilliant mind. Wow. He's a genius. He says, wow. God is with this guy. Everything he does, God makes it successful. So you can imagine that Yosef finds favor in Potiphar's eyes because of course he does he helps him he helps him become wealthy so what's the result of it so Potiphar says you know what you're a broker Morgan Stanley Smith Barney uh, I don't know Merrill Lynch Bernstein and you give the guy you say let's try out you know what I'm going to give you X amount of money let's see how you do and the guy turns X amount of money into X times 10. He says, here's more. So Yosef did well. So Potiphar says, here's the rest of my portfolio. You've now got the whole thing. You're my manager of my estate. You're in charge of everything. Everything. So let's go back to my question. How did Potiphar know that it was because of God? How did he not think it was just because of Yosef's genius? So Rashi tells us, Pasa Gimel." Rashi's, you know, famously, every time Rashi makes a comment, he's asking a question. He's answering the question. Rashi's style is not to explicitly ask the question. He gives the answer, and the challenge is up to us to try to identify and ask the question. So Rashi's giving an answer, but what was bothering Rashi? I think what was bothering Rashi was what I just asked. How did he know, Potiphar know, that Yosef's success derived from his faith, from Hashem being with him? So Rashi tells us, Ki Hashem ito, Shem shamayim, Shagur B'fiv that Hashem's name was dripping off the lips of Yosef now if anyone was entitled to forget about God who was it? Yosef was a moment ago on the bottom of a pit with snakes and scorpions he survives the snakes and scorpions thinks maybe he gets to go home to his dad to Yaakov instead is sold to a caravan of Elim, and at least he has pleasant fragrances for the ride down but is then auctioned off as a slave in a foreign land. He's essentially kidnapped, sold, and is now enslaved. Would you think, would you be telling your master every other word, Amir Tz Hashem, Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Chaste Hashem? I'd say, who's Hashem? Where's Hashem? What Hashem? But Yosef takes every opportunity. Shem Shamaim Shagur B'fiv. Every opportunity, he's talking about Hashem. That's all he could do. Shem Shamaim is Shagur. He's talking about him all the time. That's why Hashem is matzliachem. V'hi Hashem es Yosef. So you could view Vahi Hashem es Yosef in two ways. You could read that to mean V'hi Hashem es Yosef, that God was with Yosef. Or you could read it that Yosef was with God. And it was that God was with Yosef can mean, and it was that God was with, was looking over Yosef. Or it can mean, and it was God was with Yosef, that everywhere Yosef went, he took God with him. Rashi reads it the second way. Everywhere what Yosef went, he took God with him. He talked about God. So Potiphar said, what do you think? Should we put the money in uh, Amazon, or should we put it in Apple, or should we put it in, in uh, Pfizer? Where, where should we put the money he said, I don't know, let's dive in on this for a minute. Hashem, what does Hashem think? You know, Let's put it here and Be'ezrus Hashem will be successful because Baruch Hashem, we were successful yesterday with what we invested. So Hasta Hashem tomorrow will be even more successful. And then what happened? He was successful. So it's no wonder that Potiphar says, wow, God is really with this guy. He keeps talking about God and we're successful. God is with him. Yosef is the first outreach worker. He's the first one in Kiev. He does it not only here, but in next week's Pasha, he does it again. He comes to paro, and again you'd say, this is his chance. He's taken out of the boar, he's taken out of the the prison, right? Because he finds himself in prison by next week's Pasha. Again, spoiler alert. False accusation, finds himself in prison, gets out of prison. He gets an appearance before the king of kings, right? He has, he's in the Oval Office. This is his chance. They've cleaned him up. Makeover. They shaved him. They put on a new suit. He's had the prison makeover. And he now appears before Paro. He's in the Oval Office. And what does he choose to do? And Paro says, look, you got one shot. You no good foreigner, stranger from a strange land, thief who tried to sleep with my assistant's wife. You got one shot at freedom. One shot at success. And you know what it is? I heard you interpret dreams. And I can't sleep, I had a bad dream. Which is not true, he went right back to sleep. I'm sleeping just fine, but I had a couple bad dreams. This is your shot. And what does Yosef say? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Did you hear I was a dream interpreter? I'm so sorry, there's some confusion here. Bilad, it's not me. Hashem ya'an lomparo. I'm so sorry you heard that, it's not accurate. I'm not the one. God can interpret your dream. I'm happy to be the conduit. The vehicle to tell you what God thinks is the interpreter. And this is what God thinks, and this is what God thinks, and this is what God thinks. And how does Paro react? What does Paro say as the end of this conversation? It's unbelievable. Paro at the beginning of the conversation is a pagan. He worships idols, he worships himself. By the end of Yosef responding to Paro, what does Paro say? Hanimsaka za isha sheruach elokimbo? Have you ever heard someone talk about God so much? Wow, Boys, this guy is this guy's spiritual. He doesn't throw him out. He doesn't say, I don't want God's dreams. I, want, I heard you've got the skill. And Paro says, God has told you this brilliant insight. You're the man. I'm putting you in charge of my home. And now all of a sudden, Paro is converted. Paro's like, from doubt, flipped out. Yosef succeeds. So the first time we see that is here with Potiphar. And next week's Pasha, we see that again with Paro. And of all people to see it from, it's the last person we'd ever, ever expected. Yosef was entitled to forget about God. Instead, he is so mindful, so aware. He doesn't stop talking about Hashem. And because Hashem is Yosef, because Hashem comes with him wherever he goes, that's what makes him an Ish Matzliach. If you take Hashem with you wherever you are, by definition, you're successful. Because it means that Hashem is with you whether the stock does well or plummets. You're with you if the investment gives you return or if the investment flops. Hashem is with you if you got good news or you got bad news. If you feel Hashem is with you, you are matzliach because you're in a position that you were meant to be. The Shlach HaKadosh says, Melech Biederman quotes, the Shlach HaKadosh says from this Pasuk, the skula, that if you talk about Hashem, Hashem, Hashem you know, we make fun of. We, we dismiss. We think that that's what happens when you, you know, came back from a year in seminary. So then you say all those things. But the Shla Kaddish says when you talk in that way, it brings great Hatzlacha. Hashem is with you. Why is Hashem with you? Because you made Hashem with you. You brought Hashem into the conversation. Shla says that's what it means. We say in Davening, Hashem hi Sakum. Rabbos is blavish. I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of ideas. Should I invest in this? Should I invest in that? Should I go into that business? Should I go into the other business? What should I do? Hashem It's the etza, it's the advice of Hashem that will carry the day. So the Slash law says, the word he, atzas Hashem, He Sakum. You know what the advice of Hashem is? He. What's he? He is an acronym for Im Yirtza Hashem. If you live with Im Yirtza Hashem, if you live with an attitude of if God wills, if it's God will, then sakum, then you'll find Hatzlacha. So this was Yosef's persona. Yosef constantly shem shamayim shoger befiv. He was always talking about Hashem, and so it's no wonder that when Potiphar sees the success, he ascribes it to Hashem. What it tells you is that the greatest outreach methodology is not the discovery seminar, it's not the drasha and shul, it's not the overt attempt to persuade the person to believe. What's the greatest outreach method? A kiddush Hashem. Be successful, be kind, and talk about God a lot. And people will associate talking about God a lot with being kind, being honest, being successful, and they'll want to be close to that God. That's what Yosef does. Yosef doesn't say, let me tell you about the Bible codes. Yosef doesn't say, let me tell you about the seven wonders of Jewish history. (laughs) Let me take you through the discovery seminar. Yosef simply says, emir tz Hashem. And because he talks in that way, he has that impact. So Potiphar has moved, and he puts Yosef in charge of more. And what happens? He puts him in charge of almost everything. What did he not put him in charge of? So let's see. Pasakeh we're up to. Pasakeh. It happened. That from when Potiphar put Yosef in charge, Via Yosef, God blessed his home on account of Yosef. and God's blessing could be found in the field, in the home, in every investment of Potiphar. He left all he had in Yosef's control under Yosef's stewardship and with him except for one thing the bread that he ate that was not for Yosef to be in charge of and Yosef was handsome he was handsome of form and handsome of appearance this is a little cryptic it's a little bit a little bit uh, what does it mean? Yosef's in charge of everything. Not everything, almost everything. He's not in charge of the bread. Oh, and by the way, he was super handsome, good looking, cool, charm, charisma. He was a winner. He had it going. What does that have to do with anything? So what does it mean he left him almost in charge of everything? Almost everything. Says Rashi, the bread here is a euphemism. What does it mean? It's Rashi, ki im halacham, in charge of everything, but the bread, he ishto. It meant, Yosef, help yourself to anything. My estate, my home, it's yours. Take it from the fridge, make yourself comfortable on the couch, take anything you want, it's all yours, except, save, my wife. Off limits. Kiim ha says Rashi, lechem is a euphemism. It means, my wife. The Ramban disagrees. And Ban Ban first quotes Rashi's same opinion, that it was a euphemism, an allusion to his wife. But then he says, no, it means literally. And why couldn't it be the food? Because as much as Potiphar embraced and accepted and even admired Yosef, but in the end of the day, he was an Ivri. Yosef had an accent. He was an immigrant. Where did he come from, Canaan? What accent did he have? The accent of the Hebrews. In the end of the day, you know the Jews are good to run the banking system to help the economy. It's, thro- it's fl- thriving, it's flourishing. But don't touch my bread, because you'll contaminate it with your impurity, with your Jewish—I don't know what—cooties. You can't touch the bread. <laughs> Because the rule among the Egyptians was that those immigrants, those Hebrews, they can't touch the food. Because the, the Hebrews, the Jews, is this not our story throughout the exile in history? We're, we're good to run the economy. We're good to help the economy blossom. But don't touch our food. Because you're disgusting, you're repulsive, you're the other. So that's the interpretation of the Ibn Ezra. The Ramban quotes it and says, I think that's the Pshat. I think that's the Pshat. You can have everything, but don't forget that as much as I appreciate what you've done and you're in charge, you're still different. So Rashi said, it meant my wife. The Ramban quotes the Ibn Ezra who says, you can't touch, you're going to contaminate. You're going to contaminate the bread. The Rashpam, Rashi's grandson also weighs in here. And he says, And he says, <laughs> He had no questions until we got to the food. What it means is, Yosef, you're in charge of everything, and I have no interest in interfering. I'm not micromanaging. The only thing I care about is what I'm going to eat. That's what I care about. What's the menu for dinner? That's what I'm in charge of. So where you invest and how you manage the money, that's up to you. Where we go out to eat, that's up to me. That's up to me. That's how the Rashbam interprets. So we saw Rashi, the Ramban, and the Rashbam, three interpretations. The Kliyakar also weighs in here, but I want to keep going because I want to get to these other Pesukim. Vaiter. By the way, Rashi's interpretation works best with the end of the Pasuk. Right? Potiphar says, You're in charge of everything, don't touch the bread. Oh, and by the way, Yosef was exceedingly handsome and had charisma and charm. According to Rashi's interpretation, you understand what Potiphar was saying. Hey, young man, I know you're good looking, I know you're handsome, I know you have charisma, you're welcome to everything. Don't get too comfortable. Be guarded. There's one thing that you can't touch, and that is my wife. It says Rashi, Vahi Yosef, Yefet Toar, Keman Shirah Atma Moshe, Rashi quotes Chazal again, an example who are critical of Yosef. Yosef, he's like he's like the what was that called the something of Wall Street. He's like moving up the chain of Wall Street. He's this hedge fund manager. He's killing it. He's wearing five thousand dollar suits. He's driving a Maserati. He's wearing a Rolex. And he's killing it in Potiphar's home. He's the number one trader in Potiphar's, in Potiphar's uh, corporation. He's killing it. And what does he start to do? He starts to care a lot about his appearance. He's good looking. He's gelling his hair. He's looking in the mirror all day. Uh, Chazal say that, not me. Literally, we just read that. He's misalsel besaro, which loosely translates as he's putting gel in his hair all day. That's what he's doing. He's slicking back his hair. So what does the Kodesh Baruch say to him? Yosef, your father's inconsolable. He can't stop mourning. And you're gelling your hair, driving your Maserati, wearing your Rolex. It's time to mix things up a bit, Yosef. You're losing you. It's time to mix things up. And that's when Aishas Potiphar, that's when the story begins. And how does it begin? Pasik Zayin. After these things, what are these things? Yosef becomes consumed by his vanity and his appearance. And the wife of Potiphar now puts her eyes on Yosef. She sets her eyes on him. And she says, sleep with me. Now I might get myself into trouble for saying this, but I don't really care. Last week we talked about, maybe we didn't talk about, last week I wrote about, that was it. I wrote about how the story of Dina is really an ancient precursor to what we're living through with the hashtag MeToo that Rav Hirsch writes that in last week's Pasha, when Shem falls in love with this girl, he is the prince, powerful. And he exploits and takes advantage of the Jewish invisible girl who no one will believe. And that's a precursor to Matt Lauer and Harvey Weinstein, all the scandals that we're living through. And Shimon and Levi are tested. Will they look the other way as we have until recently? Or will they draw a red line for a society that says you can't pass this line? Right? That's what I wrote about last week. This week, I think, is the inverse story. It's the story nobody's talking about because there's not yet a safe space to talk about it. But it's the story of a Yosef who's just trying to be a man who minds his own business and does his own thing and behaves properly. And a woman who uses her sexuality to exploit him, to tempt him, to get ahead with him, to manipulate him. And he is the victim in this inverse story. This is the other side of the story that again, it's not yet safe about to talk about. If someone would try to write this article, who would be the hero for men or advocate for men or describe what it's like to be an honest man in a woman where the world has used all of marketing and advertising, right? You understand that the, give me 10 seconds. You understand how absurd it is that we're living in a world to the entire marketing industry is based on turning women into objects, who then turns and yells at men, how dare you turn women into objects? Or reacts with enormous surprise and shock that the result is a culture that has turned women into objects. Now to be clear, God forbid I'm not blaming the victim, the men who are perpetrators, we should lock them up and throw away the key. We should castrate them. We should embarrass them and humiliate them. We should do whatever we have to do to them. God forbid I'm not blaming the victim and I'm not excusing the perpetrator. In the end of the day, it's up to every man to control himself, every human being to control themselves and to behave, period, exclamation point, end of story. But if we want to improve going forward, we need to take an honest view of ourselves and that includes realizing that if we build a world based on a platform of turning women into objects, which is every billboard, every advertisement, every ad, every movie, sitcom, television, every everything, it's the whole world we live in, then we're going to result in having a world where women are objects. And that's the world of Asha's Potiphar, right? So this week's Parsha, the man who's trying to be just and live right, is the victim. Again, it's not safe in this world to ever describe a man as being a victim, of struggling to live in a world where women are provocative, seductive, using their sexuality to their advantage. It's not easy for men to live in such a world, in the business world, in any world. But God forbid we'd ever portray a man as struggling or being a victim of that. So here that's what the wife of Potiphar... Thank you for, and thank you for uh, allowing me to have that three seconds. So here, Yosef here, is the victim... Of Pontifar Potifar, who's using her own sexuality, femininity, in order to try to manipulate and exploit and exploit him. So she says, "Vatomer shechva imi." She says, "Lie with me." Now, the first time she says, "Lie with me," what does she want? So the mafarshim are all very quick to see she was not seducing him for the full act of infidelity at first. She's looking for companionship. You know, it's so instructive, this, this section. If I had the courage, I would write an article about it. But many of the, of the affairs begin not with physical affairs, but with an emotional affair. Someone's lonely, someone feels invisible, someone feels insignificant. They're yearning for camaraderie, companionship, feeling relevant. And so a therapist who I admire very much told me that I and we should be encouraging that not only do you have to observe the laws of Yichud and so on to try to make sure that you don't fail in this test, but she gave a great piece of advice, how important it is for a couple to text during the day, to check in on one another, to not only physically be providing what's necessary for the needs of one another, so they're not looking for physical needs elsewhere, but also emotionally providing needs so they're not looking for elsewhere. So if you're sitting next to someone of the opposite gender in the cubicle, and you sit next to them for eight hours a day and you struggle to have half an hour with your spouse a day, that you don't end up being too comfortable and casual and confiding and having the companionship if you get that text every couple hours that reminds you you have a companion and that person is not your companion. A very, very important piece of advice. So Potiphar's wife does not begin with yearning for a physical affair. It begins with, as many, it begins with a Emotional affair. Sheikh Vaymi doesn't mean literally, fully. It means spend time with me. Vayyama'ain. Vayyama'ain. Where's the word Vayyama'ain mean? He says absolutely not. Vayyama'ain is not just a hard to get. Vayyama'ain is not, you know, this. Vayyama'ain is. Hard stop, absolutely, categorically, non-negotiably. No, period, end of story. Absolutely not. He wouldn't even entertain it. He wouldn't even entertain it. Vayemayim. Basalavitchik points out in his Chumash on this word vayemayim. He says, above the Hebrew word for "and he refused," we find the cantillation of the shashelas. Like if you look in your Chumash. So above the word Vayima'ein, you see a trap that is very seldom used. The trup is the three triangles, like a, right? It's the cantillation. It's called in Hebrew a shashelas What's a shashelas It's a configuration of a chain. Symbolizing that the two words Vayima'ein and Vayomer are distinct and separate. Yosef's refusal and explanation do not constitute a cause-and-effect verbal relationship. His refusal stemmed from the unbroken chain of previous generation. The Shalshel is his genealogy, his patrilineal descent, which impelled him to declare his refusal to be seduced without furnishing logic or explanation. The word Vema'in is an expression of unwillingness, of demural without any reason. This unwillingness and abduracy surfaces instinctively. It is the characteristic of the Jewish people throughout the millennia. In other words, the Rav is explaining so beautifully. Vayyama'ain has the cantillation of a shasheles, shasheles which means a chain. Yosef was able to react by saying, What are you, out of your mind? That's not even the realm of possibility. And how did he feel that? Because he intellectually sat down and said to himself, Huh, oh, is this a good idea, a bad idea? Will this have a good conclusion, a bad conclusion? No, it was instinctive. And how did he instinctively react that way? Because he saw himself as part of a chain. His father was Yaakov. His grandfather Yitzchak, his great-grandfather Avram. There was no way he was going to break that chain. There was no way a great-grandson of Avram was going to end up in a headline in Mitzrayim for sleeping with the wife of Potiphar. So he didn't have to think about it. And he didn't have to check in how he felt. He instinctively responded with refusal. It was categorically out of the question. Beyond the realm of possibility. Why? Because Vayima'in is a shashelas. Because when one is plugged into where they come from, when they view themselves as carrying the responsibility of the name, the reputation, the legacy of all who came before, it empowers. Right? The whole Yiddish expression, it's pasnashed. The whole thing we teach our children, it's beneath you. Is not, you should intellectualize, should you, shouldn't you, here's why it's a bad idea. We simply say, you're a, you're a ben melech, you're a bas melech. You're a prince, you're a princess. Don't you know where you come from? It's beneath you. It's simply beneath you. It's out of the question. Because once you get to the level of what will society tolerate, not tolerate, what's excusable, what can I rationalize, can I defend it? Now when you're in the realm of possibility, now you're in the realm of seduction. But if for you it's beyond the realm of possibility, it's just, it's out of the question. There's nothing to talk about. Right? In the words of the Ibn Ezra, on Losachmod, Losachmod, the 10th of the Eseres Adibros, you can't covet what belongs to your friend, including their wife. And the Ibn Ezra wonders, how could the Torah command an emotion? How could it tell you how to feel? Well, if my friend's wife is good looking. How can the Torah tell me not to be jealous? So the Ibn Ezra says, you know how the Torah could tell it to you? What the Torah is telling you is think of your friend's wife as if she were your sister. I don't care if your sister was Miss America. Would you be attracted to her? No, because you know she's your sister. It's just... Gross, it's disgusting, it's repulsive, it's out of the question. It's beyond the realm of possibility. So the Ibn Ezra says, that which is inaccessible to you should be your sister. So how does Yosef Vayima'ein? What gives him the courage to be Vayima'ein? What gave him the courage was the Shalsheles. He saw himself as part of a chain. He knew where he came from. He knew what was at stake. Potiphar's wife to him was his sister. His sister said, what do you... I'm sorry. I don't know who you think I am that you thought there was a chance I was gonna go with you to the bedroom. But do you know who I am? My father's Yaakov, my grandfather's Yitzchak. my great grandfather's Avram, my brothers. Like what are you crazy? There's no chance. Categorical, out of the question, zero, zero chance. Zero chance. And any god al Babaya Zazemimani, there's nobody greater than me. And the one thing that Potiphar, who's entrusted me with everything, told me is you. And even if I could explain rationalizing it here in Egypt, where maybe this was the norm, open relationships, but I can't do this to God. I'm going to do this to God. In other words, from a relative subjective morality, maybe within the Egyptian culture, it could be excused. But from the perspective of an absolute categorical morality, it's unquestionably immoral. It's beyond the realm of possibility. We barely got started. I wanted to get through this whole section, which we're not going to, but I'll leave you with this question. We know that Yosef ultimately does come much closer to falling prey to the, in, to the seduction of the wife of Potiphar, and he perseveres. And what gives him the courage to persevere? That, that same shalsheles, the same trup. Trap is not used again, but what does he see? De must de no shell of if he sees the image of his father. Well, that can mean many things. Next year, Pashas Vayeshev, I'll give you three possibilities of what that means. The simple understanding of what it means is that he saw his father in his mind's eye and he said, this is beneath me, it's past, I can't do this. My brother once told me, he suggested, that in Egypt, in this wealthy place, the home of Potiphar, maybe he saw something in her bedroom that he hadn't seen in many years. Remember where he was all these years. What did he see that in her bedroom he might not have seen? For us, we take it for granted. You could buy it for ninety nine. But in Egypt, it was very hard to construct out of glass. What might he have seen that he hadn't seen in a long time? A mirror. And when he looked in the mirror, let's go back to the beginning of the Pasha. Ela told us, Yaakov, Yosef. Rashi told us Yosef and Yaakov looked exactly alike. When he looked in the mirror, and he hadn't seen the mirror in a long time, And now he's looking in a mirror and his beard had grown in. Maybe he got a little gray. He's been through so much. And all of a sudden, he looks in the mirror and goes, oh my God. Who does he look like? His father. And he sees the image of his father and he decides, I can't do this. And here's the question I want to leave with you for next year. It's a very simple question. When Yosef is about to give in to be with the wife of Potiphar, he sees his father in his mind's eye and that gives him enough courage to say no. Where was the image of the father when the brothers are throwing Yosef in the pit? Where's the image of the father when the brothers are selling Yosef into slavery? Why didn't they see their father in their mind's eye? If the impression and imprint of a parent is so powerful that in a moment of struggle we're able to draw from it, why didn't only Yosef feel it here? Why didn't they feel it there? We'll pick up with this next year. Rabbi Maskot's phenomenal class continues in two minutes.